You need to get your shit together if you're going to actually go and do this and go and pursue this thing that you're so excited about and you can't stop thinking about. Habits you have right now it are not going to cut it. So like Mesa, get your shit together, <laughs> go to therapy, learn how to sleep, learn how to show gratitude in everyday life, get rid of the negative thought patterns. Hey guys, welcome to Active Ingredient, the podcast. I'm your host, Sophie Wheel, and I'll be taking a deep dive into why people do what they do and what it is that drives them. I believe every single person has an active ingredient to them, aka a purpose, and all we have to do is uncover what that is and activate it. I'm looking at people across the board with fancy titles like editors and chiefs, founders and CEOs, to under-the-radar activists who are changing the world one person at a time. I want to get to the bottom of how they first discovered their passion how they channel their talent consistently, and ultimately how their active ingredient is making the world a better place. This week's episode is with Mesa Chahada, the founder of Behave, a better-for-you candy company that just launched a few months ago with sweet and sour gummies and has already been featured in Fast Company, Forbes, and Business Insider. Mesa says that she's been a candy lover ever since she can remember, but like me and literally everyone else, she felt extremely guilty whenever she would finish a bag and couldn't believe that there was not a better option out there that served her. She set out to create a brand that reinvented the candy experience, bringing joy and positivity back to the indulgence with low sugar, low net carb gummy bears, featuring chef crafted flavors, nothing artificial and an elevated design. On today's episode, we get into Mesa's previous career journey, having held brand partnership and business development roles at the NFL, Uber, Daily Harvest, and SoulCycle. We get into the details of how she found the right factory, partnered with a celebrity chef, fundraised, launched, and everything in between. We get into the real transformational work she had done on herself before starting Behave. This was my favorite part of the conversation, and it's early on the importance of being able to sit in silence with your own thoughts and how much clarity comes from that, and why putting one foot in front of the other with blinders on is the only way to make significant progress. So with that, let's get into this week's episode with Mesa Chahada. Thank you so much for being on the Active Ingredient Podcast, Mesa. I'm so excited to get into your journey. I've been following... I've I've actually known you from Daily Harvest Days, so I'm so excited to get through your whole journey. Thank you for having me, So I'm so excited. (laughs) So I know you listen to Active Ingredient Podcast, so you know that I always kick off every episode with asking the guest what they were like as a kid that they remember, Um, and if there are any kind of traits or qualities that you think are in your day-to-day or your prevalent personality today. Oh, that is such a good question. I think that I always was a little bit bossy and I hate to use that word. Obviously it's so gendered. It's so like weaponized against women, but I say it in such a good way. Like I think back to my childhood self and I can just see my bossy little like personality, you know, just telling my parents what to do, like being super confident in so many ways. And Yeah, I I definitely see that in myself today. I think some of that wears off from childhood into kind of adolescence for sure. And I can see sort of that transition. And now I'm kind of doing a lot of, you know, self-work and a lot of like thinking around how I really bring that side of myself back. And I think even into adulthood, 
you know, not to get super <laughs> political right off the jump, but we, especially as women, we really are told, like, don't be bossy, you know, d- deliver things in a certain way, make sure you don't come off as intimidating or as aggressive. Mm-hmm. But I think I always did have that. I'm very... I can be very sure of myself. I really can know what I want and be very direct. And I I think I sort of tampered that down a little bit. Uh, and now I'm really working to bring that back and to really just kind of own that as a very authentic part of myself. That's literally exactly why I asked this question. Like no one has given that full thought out, like whole, like from beginning to middle to now, because when I have people on active ingredient, it's because I genuinely feel them doing something that they're really passionate about. And I have noticed a trend and people kind of coming back to that. Mm-hmm. And that's why, that's literally why I asked the question. I love that. Yeah. Um, and it's just so sad that for like a portion of our life, that kind of is just like dimmed, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, so like really my goal with the podcast is to like help people identify what those things were to try to, you know, work on bringing them back out. So actually this is like not really the trajectory of the conversation, but what, <laughs> self-work things have you done to like figure that out for yourself? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the biggest sort of start to that journey of like coming back into myself was starting therapy for sure. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think working with someone and really having that mirror, holding up a mirror and just, you know, digging into a lot of like childhood stuff and actually being able to reflect and say, oh, you know, even just exactly what you just said, that asking that question of what was I like as a child? What what were those emotions? How did I feel in that childlike state? How did that change between then and now? And how, you know, how do I come back to some parts of it? How do I evolve some parts of it? Right. Um, you know, you want to be uh, you want to be sure of yourself, but you still want to be diplomatic. You want to be, um, you want to be passionate, but you want to also be, have control. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of take those childhood qualities, but like make them relevant for your adult self? Um, so therapy is definitely a big one. We were just talking before we started, I think definitely having some, um, like daily practices has been really important for me doing a gratitude journal every morning. Um, I do like a freehand journal as well. Uh, you know, just really learning to, also find alone time for myself. I think I always identified as an extrovert my whole life. And I think, I definitely think there's this idea that you're an introvert or an extrovert. So either you get energy from being around other people or you get energy from being alone and you really need that recharge time. So I was like, oh, I'm an extrovert. I need to be out. I need to be at every event. I need to be every single night, have a social you know, a plan in my calendar. Uh, and then actually sort of through therapy and through like more self-reflection, I realized I'm more half and half. Like I need that energy from other people, but then I also need that alone time to recharge. So starting now, I really am conscious to have time in my week where I'm alone, where I'm just going to be at home, you know, cook for myself, like take a bath, just relax, be alone with my thoughts. Um, and which, and this has really been like over the last year, two years where I've really grown into this. I mean, just saying the words alone with my thoughts is crazy to me. I couldn't be alone with my thoughts before like a year, a year and a half ago, I had music TV on, you know, like I would sleep with the TV. Like I would put reruns on until I fell asleep. I literally couldn't have one second of silence. And it has taken a lot of work to kind of, you know, work on anxiety and how you, how to kind of bring that down. And yeah, just really learn to be alone with yourself. And that's been, I think, a huge part of that self-work too. That's a massive transition. Like what, was there a point where you were like, okay, enough? Like what got you to go to therapy or what got you to start journaling? What was like that transition point that really did it for you? Yeah. I mean, I think it's always been, it's always generally been something tied to work that has really like 
pushed, I would say, my stress levels to a point where I'm like, okay, I think I need outside help. So, um, you know, I, I was in a job at one point that was just a very high pressure role and position and company. And I, I loved it in so many ways, but I was reaching a breaking point. And that was when I first kind of dipped my toe into therapy, didn't really stick with it. And then, um, and then actually when I sort of got into, um, I was in another role and I was sort of starting to have this idea that maybe I want to start my own thing and maybe I want to go off on my own. And that was such a scary thought. It was like scaring the <laughs> crap out of me. Um, and it was really stressing me out because I also, I actually loved my job and I was like, what does this mean? What should I do? Um, and then that was actually when I went into therapy and, and really stuck with it. Uh, and I would say it was kind of through therapy and, and through the realization, like through those realizations that, um, you know, I, uh, you, you, any, I think anyone can kind of use some extra help and some extra, um, guidance and, and having that unbiased opinion from someone who obviously is like educated in that space. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, that was sort of the driver into therapy. And then I think my therapist has really helped me. And I've just also just become so interested in all of these kind of growth tools and, and ways to, um, ways to mitigate anxiety and stress. And like, especially now having started the business, you know, you, from the minute you open your eyes to the minute you close your eyes, it can, it can be nonstop. It could be, it could be like constant stress from the minute you wake up to the minute mm -hmm. you sleep. Some days it is like, I will absolutely admit I'm not perfect. Like there are days where I am riddled with stress from wake up until sleep and in my dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think having these routines, like that makes it so much more important to have these routines and to really be conscious of, okay, I'm really stressed out. Maybe I shouldn't go meet up with a friend tonight where, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, maybe like someone it's going to be gossip and it's going to be, you know, uh, maybe they're going to need to unload and maybe right now I'm just not in the place to do that. So let's reschedule maybe to the weekend when I have a little more headspace and we can, we can like interact in that way or, um, you know, so knowing, okay, I need some alone time right now, or, um, let me pick up my journal right now instead of putting on the TV and just having that background noise. Yeah. So yeah, just kind of learning those good habits has been so important to, um, to really be able to, I think, start and run a business because it can be all consuming and, and you kind of need those outlets. I'm curious to know from the moment that you realized that you, that the time that you actually stuck to therapy and like started to really uncover all these different things for yourself, because like you, you talk about like having all this noise and then now getting to a place where like you really can be alone with your thoughts for the person that's listening that hasn't taken that first step into therapy, like paint a picture of actually how long it took and what that journey, not to like have this whole podcast be about therapy, but it's just that like <laughs> I first, ha I firsthand witnessed you literally blossom in this new chapter. So I think it's also important to explain to someone that it's not like you're going to go to therapy for two months and then all of a sudden you're going to be sitting around meditating and journaling and then you're going to like launch a business. Like it's not, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. And I think it's such an important like piece for us to clarify, which is, yeah, I think therapy is a lifelong practice 
practice, right? And that doesn't mean you have to be in it every day for the rest of your life. I think for me, I probably will be because I just get so much value out of it. And I know everyone's journey with it will be different, but, um, you know, it is, it's an ongoing practice. Like, and there have been things that have come up over the last couple of years when I have really been consistent with it, where, you know, there's something, um, going on in my personal life or with work where we're really digging in and we're really like working through hard stuff. And then there's times where things are a little bit more status quo, but then we can explore other things and we can explore like what brought me joy as a child and how do we bring more of that in? And, and that stuff is so valuable too. It's not just when you're in a crisis mode that it really can be valuable, but, um, no, what you're saying is exactly right. And, you know, I just to like, you keep using the example of just how to learn to be alone with your thoughts. Cause at the end of the day, not being able to be alone with my thoughts was obviously just a byproduct of anxiety, right? Like, and like a hindrance because you couldn't totally see clearly. Hindrance. Yeah, of course. Like you're, I had no time in my day to think or to reflect because I just filled any downtime with white noise because I was so afraid if I'm alone with my thoughts of all those anxious thoughts that would come in or all that, you know, old, like, childhood, um, like thoughts and, and stress and, you know, the stress of the day and the stress of everything that would come in. But I think the work you have to do is to start to realize that you're, you can be fine. Like you, your thoughts are not going to kill you. And I think, you know, if you do have a little more of that anxious personality, sometimes it, it can feel like they might. So then it's better to avoid them completely. But when you actually like let yourself sit in silence and just let your thoughts and your feelings and your emotions like wash over you, I mean, that's a lot of the work that I've been doing is like, how do you move through your feelings instead of trying to move around them and avoid them? If you can actually move through your feelings, cry if you want to cry, stand up, have a dance party alone in your apartment if you want to do that, <laughs> laugh like a crazy person, buy yourself on the subway if that's what you feel, let you yourself feel the emotions because then you move through it and then you're like, you've sort of like leveled up in a way in terms of that specific emotion. Now you know how to feel it. Now you know how to interact with it. Um and yeah, I do think it's been such an important part of, um, of me being able to get that clarity to be able to, yeah, start a business, build a brand, you know, there, there's so much that goes into it. You really need to have clarity on your vision, on what you want to build and what you want to create. And I don't, I don't think I could have done that, um, just the way that I, I was living before. And, and look, it's not easy. Like, I, I know it sounds so stupid, but like the biggest thing for me was even like, and I think this was really when it, what just stood out to me as, as kind of that wake up call to do something is like, I could not sleep without the TV on. I, since college, I've been that way. Like I would have the TV on in the background. And if the TV wasn't on, I, even for five minutes, I would just be like, what am I doing? Just put it on. Cause I feel stressed out. Um, and so, yeah, that was actually one of the first things when I started therapy that I was kind of talking with her, with her about and, and working on was, I really want to get out of this habit. And so she really helped me to be like, all right, just try tonight. Like, don't like put the TV off. If you, if you're getting like a dark thought, or if you're getting that like weight on your chest, just breathe through it and just keep telling yourself you're okay. A lot of being able to 
get to that point of being alone with your thoughts and really being like more reflective and, and being more calm and more at peace is just being able to almost nurture yourself, being able to tell yourself that you're okay. Like it's parenting yourself, parenting yourself. Exactly. And just being able to, um, yeah, you have to learn how to do that for yourself. And that is a lot of kind of that journey and it, and that applies to anything, whether it's, you know, you have, um, like, body image issues or relationship issues or whatever it is that's going on in your life, the more you can just stop the negative thought cycle and be like, Mesa, stop. You're okay. Like almost now I'll even, okay, now I'm going to start sounding really kooky, but I'll even like hug myself. Like that really comforts me. Just that physical feeling of like wrapping my arms around myself helps me a lot. And it's like that, you know, just picking up some of those tools that really do allow you to, um, that really do allow you to, to, yeah, to just, to start having that alone time and, and just, uh, reducing the anxiety because that's, what's at the bottom of all of it. Yeah. I mean, I super relate. Like actually when my boyfriend and I moved in together, he's so anti TV to go to sleep, but I come from a family that there's a TV in every single room. My dad's watching the news in the kitchen. My mom's watching her YouTubes on her iPad. My sister goes to sleep watching friends. And I was doing the same thing with her friends, friends, my show. Right. And it's like the, the, transition to like living with him and and having to not do it was really hard, but I was like, whatever, you know what? He's right. Like sleeping is your sanctuary and like, you really have to disconnect. And like the more and more that I think about it and just like in every single term, and I'm absolutely not good at this whatsoever. Like I'm still in that noise phase and it's really hard for me to step back because I can use it as like, quote unquote work as a, as a crutch, you know, like, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm, this is like a work related thing. But, um, but it's, it's, I feel like it's like the adult pacifier, you know, like, YouTube, yeah. Insta- like a, yeah. just the consumption is our, our, the way that we're parenting ourselves, but you can't parent yourself with an outside source, which has been yeah. one of my biggest realizations going to therapy is that exact thing. Mm-hmm. So thank you for explaining your whole therapy no, session, but so I super true. relate. And you bring up such a good point too, around sleep, which I think is one that we just forget about sometimes. Like I, you know, I, I've kind of been talking about how to clear your mind and clear your thoughts from an anxiety perspective, like while you're awake. But the other thing to think about is what does it do when you have friends on your laptop next to you running uh, back to back all night, right? I'm not getting a good night of sleep. I also was sleeping with the light on another symptom of the anxiety. So I had the light on, I had friends running in the background and then what kind of sleep was I getting? And now I know for me to function, to be at my highest level of sort of performance and functioning, to be able to show up for my team, for my company. Um, I know that I need to have a good night's sleep. That is so important for me. It's eight to honestly, eight to nine hours. And so, you know, even just knowing that I think a part of me knew I will not be able to start a company and to run a company if I don't get my sleep habits cleaned up because it's just not going to happen. I'm someone who does need a lot of sleep. And if I'm getting not enough sleep and bad sleep, I'm just, there's no way I'm going to have the energy throughout the day to do this like really daunting thing. So I think honestly, when you ask kind of what was the catalyst, probably a big part of it was having this idea, this business idea in the back of my head that kind of like it was sort of picking at me for a couple years actually before I really jumped into it. And I think the more it picked at me, the more I was like, you need to get 
I don't know if I can curse, but you need to get your shit together if you're going to actually go and do this and go and pursue this thing that you're so excited about and you can't stop thinking about. The the, the habits you have right now it, are not going to cut it. So like Mesa, get your shit together, <laughs> go to therapy, learn how to sleep, learn how to show gratitude in everyday life, get rid of the negative thought patterns. Like I'm not perfect at any of this. Like I don't want to give off that impression, but I'm just learning every day. Like I woke up this morning and I scrolled TikTok and I was on the way here and I was like, why did I do that? But, you know, but I also did my journal and I also had like a moment of kind of silence. It's a practice. And every day is going to come with a different thing, but that's, I mean, that's such a good takeaway and that you like identified the noise of you, not noise, but like just like the voice that you really wanted to do something, but you had to take care of yourself Mm -hmm. before showing up in your full self to actually execute on something that was this important to you. It's a, it's a great learning. So this was like completely off the way that I normally do active ingredient, but I actually think it's going to be more valuable. So let's go back to your career journey. What did you think that you wanted to be um, when you were kind of like starting your career? And then walk me through, you've had a really incredible career prior to starting this. So kind of walk us through that. Yeah, thank you. Um, No, so I... When I was leaving high school, going to college, I was like, I'm going to be a diplomat in the State Department or with the UN. I was sure of it. I'd watched like all these documentaries senior year of high school. I became this like raging liberal. I (laughs) wanted to, you know, save the world, whatever, um, through diplomacy and through, you know, now I have a lot of new opinions about that whole world, but that was what I wanted to do. I went to school and studied international relations and economics. Um, and I really was going down that path. I was doing all the internships like with the UN and with, um, the OECD, which is another international organization. And I was meant to do an internship with the state department, but, um, I ended up sort of doing those internships and realizing like that, that world is just very slow moving. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of red tape. It's a lot of time and energy goes into getting very little done. And I think I just felt frustrated in that environment. And I just realized through those internships that this wasn't going to be a good fit for me and just for my personality, just constantly running into roadblocks, constantly being told you can't do something, but not without any good reason. Um, you know, a lot of these big organizations, there's just so much bureaucracy. There's a lot of actually money being spent not on the economic development, not in the sort of developing countries or the um, on the projects and the spaces where they're trying to sort of improve the situation, but just sort of in the corporate headquarters, in like internals. keeping the lights yeah. on. Yeah. Um, and I think I just found that really frustrating and I was a bit turned off by it. Um, and so I, I started kind of rethinking uh, during my junior and senior year of college, like I, if I were to do something else, what would it be? Um, and I ended up kind of just actually coming across in like this internship job site, the NFL had an internship in the international department. So I had all this international experience and I didn't really know how I was going to get into the business world because I, all my studies, all my classes, all my internships had been in the international development side of the world. Um, but this was sort of a great blend because it was in a business atmosphere, but they were looking for someone who had international experience or to had like a worldly perspective and could bring that perspective in. Um, so I just, I got super lucky. Like I applied online. I feel like no one gets a job or an internship applying online, but somehow, um, I, I, yeah, I got that internship. I had a really great experience. And then, uh, I went to the NFL after school as well. So I started my career there. Um, 
I really loved it. I was in this um, rotational program that they have for college, like recent college graduates, where you rotate different departments. Every Let me tell you, I've said this. On, I've had a few people on Active Ingredient talk about these rotational yeah. programs, and I'm just like, if if every single industry could offer this, mm-hmm. or every corporate corporation could offer it, yeah. like I really genuinely think that when you leave college, or even when you're in college, leaving a few years after whatever, like no one knows what you want. Like totally. no one knows what you want to do for the rest of your life. Totally. Like that's the best type of program. Yeah. So amazing that you were able to get into that. Yeah. It, I mean, it, I, I didn't even totally know, I didn't even know that existed by the yeah. way, when I graduated, like it, it would have been great for me because I didn't know what I wanted. A hundred percent. I wouldn't have known about that program unless I had sort of randomly landed into the internship. And then, you know, they tell you about the program while you're in the internship. And, um, I just got really lucky that, um, the executive at the NFL that I interned for really became like a mentor and really sort of supported me mm-hmm. and, and, um, really had my back in applying for that program as well. Um, and, and yeah, you, you know, you get to see a lot of different facets of the business, but I think the other really important thing about a program like that is that you get a little bit more slack. Like you're not, you're not an, you're not being thrown into the work in a way where, you know, I just think about my friends that were in investment banking, like they were creating financial models for Emmett for like merger and acquisition deals on billion, multi-billion dollar deals. And it's like, if you mess it up, I remember like they would be chewed out. They would be like the, the deal would be in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Like it was so serious in a program like the, um, the rotational program at the NFL, it's like, they kind of know that they're there. The teams around you are there to train you. They're there to help you. And it's, it's not just training you in what the work is going to be, which is obviously an important part of it, but it's like, how do you write an email? You get out of college <laughs> so and you're funny. just expected to know how to write. Like, when do you use best versus thanks versus no, 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 an Mesa, you have no idea versus... how funny. When my sister graduated, she was like, can you help me write this email? And I, uh, sorry, Moose, to put you on blast, but whatever. <laughs> she literally just sent me the email and it was like, dear first name, last name, comma. Yeah. And I was like, Moose, like, no. Yeah. No, and I'm only <laughs> laughing because same, like, I look back at some of my emails and they're either way too formal or way too cat. So in a rotational program, it's like everyone in the company, know it was a small program. I think we were 10 people each year. So everyone kind of knows who the, um, who the JRPs are. That's what, that's what we were called. And, um, you know, you get a little more slack, you get a little more handholding. And that was what was so important was like, you really had kind of that dedicated mentorship, um, just through whatever team you were sitting in mm-hmm. at, at any given time. So no, I, I totally agree. I think the rotational program is such a great model. Um, I will say like, even coming into that program, I had my eye on the tech world. Like even, like I said, the international diplomacy space felt very bureaucratic. The NFL also is like a very big, Mm -hmm. well-established organization. And I, I'm so grateful that I was there right out of school because I learned so much, but I think I even was kind of thirsting for that more entrepreneurial, more like startup energy um, type company. Mm -hmm. So after the NFL, I went to Uber um, and I worked at Uber in the uh, brand partnerships and business development team. Uh, And so we were, yeah, working really on partnerships and uh, yeah, just, I was there for two years. It was a wild ride and, you know, so many ways, but really, really incredible experience. Met so many amazing people. Like a lot of, I think a lot of the people that we've met through and mutual Mm -hmm. friends I met while I was there. Um, and that was sort of my first entry into the partnerships world. And that's kind of has been like the through line of everything that I've done ever since. Um, after Uber, I wanted to go somewhere even smaller. I think I start, like I had a couple business ideas while I was at Uber, you know, very, 
high level, but I started to have that itch of like, all Do you right, think everyone what? that works at Uber is like the same? That you must be like having Wants these ideas. something? Yeah. I think that it attracts a person who's gonna, who has that in Entrepreneurial them, Who's spirit. entrepreneurial. Yeah. And I, and what I loved about Uber is that it was very entre, like, and this, this is something I've thought about in every job since the NFL is like, I wanted to take roles where I was an, where I could be entrepreneurial within the job. Mm-hmm. And I could like, I would own projects from start to finish. I could bring an idea and be the owner of that idea from when it's just, Hey, we should maybe do this all the way through to execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that was true at Uber and at, at all the positions that I had since then. So, um, and, and yeah, I mean, there have been so many startups that have come out of like the Uber, um, you alum. Know, yeah, Uber alum, alum crew, exactly. So, uh, which is really nice. We have like a really great network going. Yeah. Um, but I, so I sort of had some ideas, but definitely nothing I was ready to jump into. Um, but I think from that sentiment, I was like, let me go somewhere even smaller. So that's when I got connected to uh, Rachel, the founder at Daily Harvest. Um, they were still pretty small at the time. I think when I joined, we were like a 12, 13 person team. Uh, they I don't know if just... you remember this, but I think it was like maybe the first time or the second time that we had ever like met. We did an event together and you were like literally doing the the, the yes. demonstration yes. for Daily oh, Harvest 100%. at the Helix showroom. Do you remember? Yes, of course. Wait, that's so funny. Oh my God, that is so long ago. Yeah. Yes, the Helix showroom. Oh, wow. Um, Isn't that so crazy? Jasmine was like speaking on the yes, panel. Jasmine. Oh my God. It was so funny. Oh my God. But, um, okay. But I want to talk about like the, the transitions from Uber to daily harvest to then soul cycle, which yeah. like, I've heard you speak on a podca- podcast before and say that it was like going to from smaller to smaller. And I don't know exactly what year you joined soul cycle, but to me, it's kind of like bigger, smaller than yeah, bigger. bigger. Definitely. Um, I'm curious because a lot of the people that listen, and I'm also super curious about this, like what part of the identity did you feel tied to the places that you were working at? Um, and how did you like come to terms with the fact that you're going from Uber to daily harvest? No one knows what daily harvest mm-hmm. is when you're there. Um, obviously now it's kind of a yeah. household name in the U S but, um, yeah. What was that kind of like that transition from your identity to that? Like, I mean, going to a different place, like you think that like you may not have the same network, like you're going to have to be pitching something. You're going to have to be like selling it versus like everyone knows what SoulCycle yeah. is. Everyone knows what Uber is. Like talk to me about that feeling of being in different roles. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a good point. And I think it's it's something that I probably didn't think as much about it at the time, but that in hindsight, I can really see I can see that it was true and I can see how valuable the experience at Daily Harvest was because I think the the, the truth is that I had been at, at Uber for a couple of years. I had done the partnerships thing where everybody will take your phone call. You're getting, you know, hundreds of emails a day inbound from brands, big, massive brands down to startups that want to work with us. You kind of have your pick of the litter when it comes to who we're going to partner mm-hmm. with. You can get any meeting, Right. And then, but I think the truth is that when I was leaving Daily Harvest, I really was looking for more of a challenge and I was looking for to go somewhere smaller and to really learn what it's like to be in that early stage of a business. So I think I was really excited for that type of challenge. So I never really, I I never really like missed the, the credibility of Mm -hmm. the brand because it was so fun to build the credibility. Like that's what I got to do at daily harvest was to start to talk to big companies like, you know, uh, Vitamix and, uh, and you know, all the, like we were talking to all the coconut milk brands and all the almond milk brands and having these conversations and really being 
an active part of putting Daily Harvest on the map from a partnerships perspective mm-hmm. and sort of in the industry. Um, and that was really exciting to me. So, um, and the thing is, Daily Harvest started growing so quickly. So when I joined, like, People, I would say, if you were kind of in New York and you were in like the startup scene, you probably had heard of Daily Harvest, but we grew so quickly and, you know, we started running Subway ads and you were, you know, our brand is growing very rapidly. So within just a couple months of me being there, I think there was a lot more awareness that was building. Um, and we were putting in a lot of work to build that awareness as well. And it felt really, it felt so gratifying to actually be part of building that awareness versus, you know, I joined Uber. I didn't join Uber that early. So by by the time I joined, everyone knew what it mm-hmm. was. When I joined SoulCycle, everybody knew what it was. Um, but Daily Harvest was that really unique opportunity to actually sort of be the one explaining what Daily Harvest is and being super like you have to have so much confidence in the brand because you need to emanate that excitement and that passion so that when I go into a meeting with Nike, who maybe some people around the table have not heard of Daily Harvest before how am I getting them as hype about Daily Harvest as I am so mm-hmm. that they're going to be like, oh, we need to do a partnership with this brand. Um, That's so, like probably the most valuable thing that you could figure out before starting your own. Before starting your own company. Yeah. Because, I mean, Behave is the definition of nobody knows what we are, right? Yeah. We're brand new yeah. yet. Um, and so a lot of that energy and a lot of those skills, I think that I picked up at Daily Harvest about how do you pitch something, how, you know, make sure that you assume that nobody knows what you're talking about. With Uber, it's like, like, you know, I would never get on a call and have to explain to somebody what Uber was, right. what the product was. At Daily Harvest, I did. I had to get on the phone. Hey, here's what we're doing. Here's, um, you know, here's what our products are. We're a subscription service. We do. And you have to mm-hmm. get that pitch nailed down, short, concise. Um, and so I think that I le- picked up a lot of skills just around communication and pitching and, yeah. um, and from that role. Yeah. And, and then, you know, going from Daily Harvest to SoulCycle, I think it was sort of back into that world that felt a little bit more like Uber you know, definitely can get any meeting. People are super excited and passionate about the brand. Um, and I think if you're, you know, if your question was really around identity at the end of the day, I think I do, I do in, and I always have really tied my identity to my job. Not necessarily that, you know, it was not necessarily to Uber, to SoulCycle or to, to a specific brand, but whatever I'm doing, I'm so bought into it. And I think it does become a part of my identity. I'm definitely, again, through a lot of the self-work trying to sort of separate the two Mm -hmm. and not because that does create a lot of sort of emotional turmoil. Like if you feel defined by your job, um, you know, any given day can just become so a roller coaster. And I mean, that is never more true than when it's your own company because it is your identity, <laughs> right? Like it, you've put your soul yeah. into that brand. Um, and so everything kind of, everything that is good feels even better. Everything that is bad hurts even worse. Um, so yeah, I think, I, I think kind of trying to figure out how to still keep that passion and that drive always, but try to separate like who I am as a person a little bit from what I do for work. I think that that's harder definitely with your own company, but, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it has always been a part of my identity, especially, you know, in a partnerships role, you're out in the world talking about the brand you yeah. work for and getting other people trying to get other people excited about it. So it really does start to, um, 
It really does start to feel Become like Become one of and you. the same, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So at, was it at Soul, Soul Cycle that you started to have the thought of behave? Like what, at what point were you actually thinking that this was the idea that was going to stick? And also like, how did you identify that this was the idea that you were going to go for? I had B. Shapiro on and she was like, it was the only idea that I put next steps to, mm-hmm. you know? Like she's like, yeah. I had so many ideas floating around that I Googled, but like it's yeah. the only one that I actually put like meetings together for and next steps for. Yeah. I mean... So, uh, when I had the idea was actually when I was at daily harvest. So I wouldn't say it was a business idea at that point, but I had, um, I got to daily harvest. I had sort of like been burnt out, was not living healthy while I worked at Uber. Um, you know, not eating well, not exercising. I get to daily harvest and I'm like, this is a good opportunity. I work at a health food company now. Let's like start rethinking what I'm eating, Mm trying to eat a little cleaner, but candy was always my vice. Like I couldn't get away from candy. I got, you know, I really cleaned up a lot lot of my eating habits. Um, and I was living, I was, um, I was living at the time with someone also who was keto. So we were just really like had our eyes out for these low sugar products, for these new, more healthier snacks mm-hmm. and, and items. And we found so many good alternatives. Like we found good, great low sugar ice cream with halo top. We found Banza chickpea pasta, high protein, gluten-free pasta, like all these things that were coming out and blow, starting to blow up. And candy was the one thing where whenever I went to get candy, there was just the old school candy from when I was a kid and the, the products have not been innovated and the brands even haven't innovated. Like it's the same packaging, the same logos, the same mascots, the same little cartoon characters Mm -hmm. as the nineties, you know, or, and even earlier. Um, so I think that was when I started to have a little light bulb moment of like, no one's really doing anything in the candy space. That's interesting. Why not? Um, and you know, why not? What did you, what did you learn? I mean, what I've learned is that it's very hard to make a product like this. It is, um, you know, making low sugar candy that taste, that still tastes delicious is not something that anybody off the street can just go in their kitchen and do. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, so I, I think it's, it's very hard to do. I think the candy industry is also just extremely competitive. There are these massive incumbents, right? There are these multi-billion dollar brands. Um, and I think it can be intimidating, but also at the end of the day, candy is a product that is typically made with 90, 95% sugar. Mm-hmm. So when you want to take out the sugar, it's, it's a science experiment and like a culinary experiment to figure out, all right, what do we replace it with where it still tastes sweet, where it still tastes good, where the flavor still comes through. Um, that is not like an easy yeah. task, I think. So, um, that's definitely what we've learned kind of through our R and D process. We can get into it more. Yeah. So sure. walk me through like uh, the point that you wanted to start this, that you were like, okay, this is the yeah. idea that I'm actually going to stick to. What were your first steps? Were you at daily harvest or at soul cycle? And yeah. then also like when it comes to, I want like the nitty gritty on like, yeah. how much did you save? Like, yeah. were you like, at what point were you like, I'm I'm going to have to fundraise for this? What was that moment? Then walk us through that whole journey. Cause yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't understand that it takes like a few years to be able to even yeah. get like a first product iteration to even try. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so impatient. And I always think like, I, I move the fastest. I, you know, I can move faster than everyone else. And it's definitely very humbling to be like, no, this stuff takes time, especially food and physical products. So I had that early, like kind of thought around it while I was at Daily Harvest. I ended up getting, um, recruited for this role at Soul Cycle to lead business development. It was a really exciting opportunity. I really was super excited about it. So, um, I went and did that. And again, like the candy thing was still sort of a curiosity at this stage. It it wasn't really a business idea yet. Um, so I went to Seoul and I, you know, I, I started the role there. I, I loved it, but that candy thing just stuck with me. If I was at the movie theater, if I was at a gas station, a, a CVS, like I would check the candy aisle and just be like, 
there's still no one doing this. And I think a year passed, a year and a half passed. And then it really just got to the point where I was like, no one is doing this. And I could start to see the business opportunity around it too. As I started to think about it a little bit more, I started maybe like looking up, right? How big is this market? You know, it's $26 billion. Math candy is a massive market. Um, you know, what does this really feel like a good business opportunity? Um, and then I think when I, when I started to feel like it was, I, um, that was when I started asking myself, all right, how would we make a product like this? So I talked to a bunch of like R and D firms mm-hmm. that basically are. How did you get connected to, connected to them? Google, Google, okay. and asking around. So okay, so it, all right, let's get super nitty gritty. So when I when I sort of said, all right, I'm I am more curious about candy than just you know uh, an idea in the back of my head. I first started asking everyone I knew to connect me to other food and beverage founders, people who have started CPG companies. Um, I got connected to a couple of people. Um, you know, uh, a founder of a, of a sparkling water company, founder of a, um, refrigerated bar company, slow up and Sanzo. These were the two Mm -hmm. founders, amazing products. Everyone should check them out. Amazing (laughs) founders. Um, and you know, from there just kind of snowballs, like then they'll introduce you to other founders. And then, you know, the, the food world is really the food startup space is really tight knit and, um, a lot of really good people who are just super nice and collaborative. So it's like, all right, I, like, I didn't know what the next steps were. So I was like, what did you do to get started? Right. And it's mm-hmm. like, all right, you make your recipe and then you find a co-packer and I'm like, what's a co-packer? And they're like, menu, it's a factory. No, and also like, you're not, you're not a chef. Like, what do you mean? Get, yeah. How do you make a <laughs> yeah, product? You... Right. And then, you know, some people, they did it themselves in their kitchen. Some people, they went to an R and D firm. So you, you start to kind of hear, I would say like connecting with other founders was one of the biggest parts for me to just keep knowing, like, I always say it's just putting one foot in front of the other. So what is the next step that I need to take? Talking to other founders would always help me anytime I got stuck. All right, what's, let me just call up, um, you know, let me just call up my friend who's doing a, a food or a beverage company and say, all right, here's where I'm at. What's the next step? Um, and so that was super helpful. Definitely the next step for me was, um, was figuring out how to make the product. So I Googled and I think probably through asking around as well, got connected to a couple of these R and D firms, uh, and they charge a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars typically. And I also found the approach that a lot of these R and D firms take is essentially to say, all right, what's the nutrition panel you want? What are the ingredients? What are your must haves? You know, it has to be under three grams of sugar. It has to be whatever Mm -hmm. protein, whatever calories. And they'll almost like do R and D in an Excel spreadsheet. And they'll kind of like figure out what the formula should be like in Excel or like at a sort of mathematical level. And then they'll go into a lab, really not even usually a kitchen and they'll kind of make the product and then they'll just keep tweaking it and like try to make it taste good. That's so fascinating. And I was like, I think this is why a lot of health food products really don't taste very good if this is the approach. And I'm like, we're making candy. I knew first and foremost that I will not have a successful candy company if the candy doesn't taste good. If it tastes like green juice, if it tastes like, you know, candy, that's not that sweet. Um, if it tastes like weird flavors, it's mm-hmm. just, no one's going to give up that taste when it comes to an indulgence like candy. So I sort of flipped the approach and I was like, what if I could find a chef, ideally a pastry chef 
who knows about sugar, who knows about this pastry and the confectionery world, uh, to partner with me and to come on board. And that was when I, I literally Googled like best female pastry chefs in the U S or something like that. I knew I wanted to work with a female chef. Um, and I reached out to a couple of people and I had a couple conversations and I met, uh, Elizabeth Faulkner and we just hit it. Like she answered my email within, uh, I don't know, a couple days. We had a phone call right away. We hit it off on the phone. I think a day later, two days later, we got coffee and it was just instant connection, instant understanding of what I wanted to do, why I wanted to do it. Definitely. Like she was super motivated. She was like, I know I can make this, you know, Elizabeth has done all the, like she she'll say this too. She's done all the food competition shows, top chef Mm. shop. She's like, to me, this was just another challenge. Like I love that competition of food. And I think she really saw it as this challenge of like, how can we make something that is better than everything else that's out there, even better than the sugar candy. Um, and yeah, we partnered and, and we sort of, how did you sell it to her? Sorry to, sorry to cut you off, but like, how did, how did you sell it to her? Were you like offering her a piece of the company? Like how, how does that work? Yeah. So, you know, our, the way that our partnership is structured is, uh, Elizabeth has an equity stake in the business. And then we did a, um, you know, there was also a payment, Mm -hmm. but you know, I will say definitely, you know, uh, that equity piece, I think was a bigger part. I obviously didn't have a lot of money. And the other thing, um, and the other thing that we did that Elizabeth was very gracious to be willing to do is that I I paid a smaller fee up front and then there was going to be an additional payment once we had fundraised for the business. Mm. So, you know, being able to um being able to kind of backlog some of the cash portion of her yeah. compensation um to where once we had fundraised and we had investors on board then obviously we could afford and you can pay it back. We still haven't, yeah. you know, her, her rates are obviously astronomical, but I think, you know, a lot of the payment, um, that we're, that, that we're discussing is really in the equity. And she sees the vision for the business that, you know, this is a, um, this is like a hundreds of millions, if not billions dollar opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having an equity stake in that is super valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's how we got started. Your question about money. I'm, I think it's such an important one and such an important one to be really transparent about. So I had a, you know, I had a very good salary at SoulCycle. I was, and actually, I, I want to almost answer two questions that you asked. One was, how did you know that this was the idea you were going to go after? And then how did you um, like sort of finance it in the early days? I knew that this was the idea that I actually, because I had had ideas too, and I had Googled, and I had like done a little bit of research on a couple of different things at, at some point. But basically... I I was having a conversation with a friend and he was, uh, and he was like, you, um, you know, if this is what you, and I I remember I was saying like, my job at SoulCycle is so demanding. I'm never going to have the time to like work on this, to really build this to where it needs to go. But I also don't have the money right now to like leave my job and start this. And he was like, you have a good salary. I know that savings money in New York is hard. And I had never saved money before. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was like, I know saving money in New York is hard, but um, if you actually want to do this idea, you'll figure out how to save money and you will find the time. That's it. At the end of the day, you don't, you have time to watch, um, what I, I forget what, what, don't you have time to watch whatever HBO show is on mm-hmm. You're every Sunday you're in front of that TV watching that show. So if this is really the idea you're going to want to do, the time exists. You're just going to decide whether this means enough to you to find the time to put the money away. And so that honestly, that conversation was such a wake up call for me where I was like, 
I do really want to do this. And I got really disciplined. So this was right around the time where I was also talking to Elizabeth. So I basically started saving as much money as I could. What I did was um, I put $200 cash in an envelope at the start of each week. And I, um, and I would only try to spend that. And that sounds crazy in New York city. Um, I think insane. I'm going to try. I, it, it it was life-changing. I need to go back to it. And like most weeks I wouldn't even spend the 200. I would have like money left over for the next week. And I saved the most money I ever have in just in a matter of maybe four or five months, I saved up about six months of living expenses. So now I had this nest. And I will also say I had a bonus from soul cycle, like mm. getting a bonus is a game changer. I had never, I had had small bonuses, but i had never had like a substantial bonus. Um, and you know, it's the unfortunate reality. Like having a cash windfall like that makes a big difference Mm -hmm. in being able to say, all right, now I have six months of savings. And, um, and that was really important to me, I think, to be confident to leave my job because you never know how long it's going to take to fundraise. Right. You never know when you're going to be able to start paying yourself a salary again. So I really needed the confidence to say I can live for six months with what I've saved yeah. and at least get to the point where where I have been able to fundraise or I have been able to figure out a source of revenue for mm-hmm. this business or maybe you know consult on the side while I work on this or whatever it was going to look like. So yeah, I, I was able to get that saving. And then I was also using my salary to pay for the, any expenses that were coming up, whether it was, you know, paying the, the early payment to Elizabeth mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, we were spending a lot on Amazon on all the ingredients. Um, and I was really just kind of using my, my own, my own salary to fund that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, I just want to be really transparent. I was making a lot of money. That mm-hmm. is, uh, if I didn't have that salary, like, I don't think, I, I don't know how I would have gotten to where I am today. So right. I feel very blessed and I really, do acknowledge like the privilege that is required to kind of have the capital for those early days. And it really allowed us to, um, to put, you know, certain pieces in place that I just don't know how I would have done that if I didn't have, um, if I didn't have like that, that salary and that cash flow to be able to, to support that. How long did it take you to fundraise? So fundraising, I got super lucky. I did it in a couple of weeks. So I Mesa. fundraised. <laughs> I fundraised at the end of last year. I will say the economy was booming. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, there was a lot of capital out there. I think I also, from knowing again, from having networked with all these founders, I had a lot of amazing mentors who really gave me such great advice on how to approach fundraising, on how to um on, on how to create a really concise narrative and a concise story. And, you know, so many of my founder friends like sent me their investor decks and they had these incredible decks that I was able to kind of model my, my story and my pitch off of that I think helped me get super clear and super concise to the point where, you know, I really felt, even though I had never fundraised myself before, I, um, I felt so confident in going into it. And the, the other thing that other founders will do is like, they've been through it. They know how hard it is and they will just cheerlead for you. Like, that's what I love about having a big network. And that's why I really surround myself with other founders. And I really, I'm so intentional about who I surround myself and spend time with. Like, look, there are founders who you'll meet with them and they'll be like, fundraising is super hard. It's going to take you six months. It's the worst experience of your life. And it's good to have those friends too, that kind of give you the real, but the people I really surround my, I had so many founder friends that were like, this is a great idea. It's a massive market. 
you're going to have no problem fundraising. How much you want to raise? Oh, half a million. Why, like why that, why that amount do more? Um, you know, like you, you can raise that money. You can raise as much money as you want. You'll be able mm-hmm. to raise it, go out, do it. And here, here are five of my investors that I know are going to be excited about this idea. I'll introduce you to them. Surrounding yourself with those founders that really just have your back and not just from, you know, helping you out and making intros, but even just that cheerleading and that like, um, you almost need founder therapy. Um, and yeah, ha- having those people, I think made a huge difference for me to have the confidence mm-hmm. to go out with the fundraising and make it move really quick. How long from when you fundraise to actually launching? Yeah. So we fundraised in the fall of last year and then we launched at the end of this past summer. So it was, um, it was about eight months. Um, you know, we had planned to launch in the spring, but with COVID Mm -hmm. our production was delayed by two and a half months. So, you know, that definitely was a damper. I think what was really pivotal for me and for, for the businesses that I tried to keep things super, super lean up until launch. So I hadn't hired anybody. Um, you know, it was just me, anything that I was doing, I had outsourced for the most part. So any agencies or freelancers, we could sort of just put the pause on with Mm -hmm. them until, you know, when we had that production delay. And so, yeah, that was, that was really lucky that we had sort of set ourselves up that way because our launch was absolutely delayed and and impacted by COVID. So I want to talk about your launch because it was a flawless execution. It was so, so strong. And I come from like a PR marketing background. So like I saw it and I was like, damn, this, she she just killed it. Um, and obviously you had the hurdle of COVID and not being able to do in-person events and, you know, Mm -hmm. get the actual product in people's mouths yourself. Um, so I want to talk about your friends and family strategy. I thought that was genius. Mm -hmm. Um, and out of all, because I feel like I've seen you do Instagram paid, obviously like the seating friends and family, Mm -hmm. et cetera. What has resonated the most? Well, Mm -hmm. first answer the part about the question of uh, your strategy for launch. And then second, like what has been the thing that you've seen resonated the most in terms of actual customer acquisition and people that are obsessed with behave now. Yeah, absolutely. So we, in terms of the strategy, we decided to go completely direct to consumer for the launch. Mm -hmm. We had initially had some retail plans around doing some like cool boutique retail around New York, but with COVID and, you know, it was end of summer, things had started opening up again, but it was very unclear exactly how much. So we decided let's just focus in completely on D2C and on on the digital space. Um, You know, everything that you just listed off is sort of exactly right. Uh, So, you know, our launch strategy was really centered around influencer marketing, PR and social media and a little bit of paid, but we, you know, the paid marketing that we did was really more a test and learn strategy versus like pumping a ton of money into paid and was paid um, just on uh, Facebook, Facebook and and Instagram. Instagram. Exactly. Yes. And, um, so yeah, we, in terms of what worked, so like I said, the paid was very small. We, you know, we did not drive, um, we weren't driving like a ton of our, of our sales and that what the strategy was not to drive a ton of our sales through paid. Um, what really worked, I think was, um, PR, PR brought in a lot of traffic and a lot of eyeballs. Um, and I think PR, especially what it did for us was create a big swell of brand awareness where a lot of people sort of in that launch week heard about us, saw us, saw an article about us. Um, and that really helped to get us on people's radar so that 
we could convert them somewhere else down the funnel. I don't know. It's really hard to say exactly how much direct conversion you're getting from from PR. You know, my it's literally the cross that I have to bear every day of my yeah, life. Yeah, because exactly. it is. It's it's a funnel. It's a hundred percent a funnel, and like Absolutely. the PR is kind of like the credibility that seals the deal. Exactly. But um, so out of I mean, just like because I come from a PR perspective, what um piece of press did you see actually like do the the best for you guys? That's such a good question. You know, I, I don't even think I could pinpoint a specific article. You know, we, we had some really good coverage, um, that was very product focused mm-hmm. that were like product reviews. Um, and I think, you know, we definitely saw some traffic, um, and some sales. I, I shouldn't say traffic. Traffic was driven, I think, by all the PR. We mm-hmm. saw some sales driven, um, definitely through some of those reviews, um, and, and some of that type of PR. But ultimately, I actually think, I actually think that the most sales were driven through influencer marketing. That my, my impression is that people sort of caught wind of behave through the press. Um, and then when they see it on someone that they trust Instagram, when they see someone they trust someone eating, they trust, ingesting exactly. something, that's how you get it. 100%. Exactly. And that, that's my impression is that I don't think the influencer post alone will convert someone. I don't think the press post alone, but I think the combination. combination and having someone see your brand two, three times in the course of that launch week is what drives like that really strong conversion in, in the, the early days and right around the launch. And we were really lucky. We saw super, super strong. I mean, we blew through all of our forecasts and through all of our expectations. And, um, and, and, you know, I think that that was really a product of everything working together, even, even the paid, like, again, we weren't spending a ton on paid, but I think we were showing up in front of the right people, Mm -hmm. you know, people that also follow the influencers that we were gifting to, um, people that, you know, read the publications that we were being promoted Mm -hmm. in. And so again, kind of creating that halo effect where someone can see you. I I think the number is typically, I think the data is that you, someone who sees you seven times to purchase. Right. So, so yeah, that, that, that was really the halo effect that we were trying to create. And I think we had a lot of success with it. We were really, really happy with the influencer marketing. Um, and, and influencer marketing, you mean you were just seeding, you were not paying. We influencers. Were seeding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We did everything on a seeding basis. And I mean, the, the beauty with candy, and this was very much kind of part of my, I would say this is kind of part of my like pitch to investors. And part of my pitch for the business in general is like, we actually, we can do a lot of things very cheaply because people love candy. Like we, we get influencers with mil- with over a million followers who DM us mm-hmm. who say, Oh my God, I've been looking for a candy alternative. Like if please, will you send me some, like, I'll be happy to post. These are influencers that typically are paid 10,000 plus 100%. for a post and they're hitting us up. So being in the candy and, you know, and like another great example is we did a photo shoot recently and I had a couple models and influencers I really wanted in the shoot. And I was like, there's no way we can afford them. But I think because it was candy and because we have this really fun brand and our branding is really kind of tongue in cheek and we have this attitude about us, like a lot of those models and influencers were like, no, we're game. Like we'll do it on your budget just because we, you know, we love the vision and we love what you guys are doing. And so being candy, I think, uh, it's so true. Um, we did the launch for not pot and it was like one of those things that I've in my career never seen (laughs) influencers be so game for, for a gummy bear. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's, it's wild. So talk to me about the friends and family. Um, I have not seen a lot of people do that in the, in the before launch situation. So talk to me about that strategy and did it, did it work? 
Yeah, in terms of friends and family, you mean um, like, like when you like with seating and, and like yeah. what I thought was super smart was adding a person like a friend the way friend. Yeah. yeah talk about your strategy yes. behind it because I, I honestly was like this is the smartest thing I've ever seen. Oh my gosh, thank you. Um, no, so we and I also definitely can't take credit for for that strategy. I think I, I spoke with a number of founders and we we sort of had brainstormed and and we're we're kind of ideating around something similar together. But um, yeah, so so basically my strategy was make a list of everyone in my life who is influential. And that doesn't necessarily mean a hundred thousand followers. Mm-hmm. That also is tastemakers like yourself, right? I, you know, someone, I, I don't know how many Instagram followers you have. <laughs> Not I don't many. think it's a hundred thousand, but you influence people who are influential. You influence people who are founders mm-hmm. who own brands. So, you know, who, who are the tastemakers in my life? Who are the influencers in my life? Um, kind of really building that list. And then, with the people that I'm very close with, um, you know, I wouldn't ask this of anyone, but people who I'm close with, people who I, I know really wanted to show up for me and for the brand and, and really kind of, you know, help me out around the launch. I did this sort of fr- uh, gift to a g- gift candy to a friend, um, program. So we basically would go out to those people and say, Hey, um, we'll be sending you a box of behave around our launch. And why we'd love for you to also give the gift of candy to a friend of yours. And, you know, subtext is definitely ideally an influential friend of yours, but you know, some people just did their business partner or, you know, someone in their running club. And that was cool too. Um, but for the most part, you know, we were really able to access like another layer of people that I don't know personally, um, but that are super influential that we wanted to get our products in front of. And then what we did is that we actually wrote the note cards in those gift boxes from their friend. Just so I have goosebumps because yeah. like I fucking love this like yeah. strategy. I think it was just the smartest thing ever. Yeah. And candy is one of those things that like, I mean, and and the cost of it versus like what PR packages look like. I, I just, yeah. on, on every level, I thought it was yeah. genius because oh, from you. a cost perspective, not a lot. Yeah. And then you're making someone's day and someone else that may not be influential is also getting it. So you're yeah. getting them talk to their friends about it. It's just... Genius. Yeah, yeah. No, and and I think, you know, something that actually a girlfriend of mine, Julianne, she runs an influencer marketing agency called Dialogue. We had a lot of conversations on influencer marketing pre-launch and, and she really helped me shape um the strategy. And she said something really important, which was the reality is when you're not in the market yet, it's hard to get influencers who don't know you to post about you mm-hmm. or to because you just don't exist yet. Your website's not up, your um, you don't, your brand doesn't exist, you have haven't launched, like you, you, people have not seen your packaging. They don't know what you stand mm-hmm. for. So it's very hard to reach out to someone when you haven't launched yet, who doesn't know you yeah. and say, Hey, I'd love to, you know, sure. They'll take the gift, but I think it's very unlikely that they'll convert. And in these early stages of the business, if I'm putting the money and the product into gifting, like we really want to see those, those gifts convert into posts. Um, and so, you know, she really helped me think through, all right, instead of trying to like DM all these random influencers that I don't know, who do I know in my network? Even if it's a little bit of a smaller list, like leverage the network and then do the friends of friend. And Mm -hmm. that is that friends a friend and have the, have the gift to the friend come from the person that they know, because someone, you know, if you send a box to your XYZ friend, they're going to be like, oh my God, Sophie sent me this. That's dope. I sent it like, to my friend who's the founder of Globar. And she yeah. was like, this is so smart. This is yeah. so cool. And she's, again, like she doesn't have a hundred thousand followers, but I think she has like close to 10. I don't know, whatever. Totally. And totally. it's like, I don't know. I just, so yeah. people take and note because saw. it was just so yeah. good. Yeah. And we really saw that. Like, and it I, works with candy. Yeah. And and how would that friend of yours felt if she just got, got a random you. box in the mail right. that said, hey, like, lo- like from Team Behave, enjoy this candy. She'd probably be like, cool, what's Behave? Like, who 
are these people? Yeah. But when it comes from you, it's like, oh, my girl Sophie sent me something like she was thinking of me. That's so sweet. So no, the friends of friends we love, and it's definitely something we plan to kind of bring, bring into back. the yeah the future and and as we kind of build out our influencer marketing strategy. So smart. Yeah. Okay. So for, I feel like we've been talking about behave and like hinting a little bit of what the taste is. Walk us through what it tastes like for someone that hasn't tried it yet and what they can expect. Yeah. So we have two skews right now. We have gummy bears that come in sweet and sour. Each bag has three flavors. So we have lychee, passion fruit, and raspberry in every bag. The sweet are definitely like your typical kind of fruity flavored gummy bears. And then the sour, I think are, you know, that super sour, not so, not like going to burn the roof of your mouth sour, not warhead sour, but you know, we definitely get the feedback that these are like, these are great for sour lovers because you actually have that sour flavor. Um, the lychee and the, you know, the way we landed on those flavors is we, we really want to do things kind of differently. Like I said, we have this um, incredible celebrity chef behind our brand and behind our products. So we don't want to just be putting out your traditional conventional candy flavors. We want to really be thinking outside the box. It's very important to us that it's still flavors that are going to resonate with, you know, the consumer. We we're only currently in the U.S., so we're really thinking about the American consumer at the moment. Um, but you know, passion fruit and lychee are coming more into the mainstream, but they're still sort of cutting edge. You mm-hmm. don't see them a lot in candy. Uh, same with raspberry, not as commonly found. Um, so it kind of gives us that premium angle when it comes to flavor, and we get so much great feedback on, um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't know what to expect, and mm-hmm. I loved like the passion fruit, or I loved the lychee. And actually so interesting in the customer feedback that we've done. It's a perfect even split between the three flavors of what's your favorite flavor, which I, you know, which you never know, like that's what's so interesting when you're kind of doing product development pre-launch, you're guessing, right? You don't know, you don't have that customer data. You know, I'm not a big billion dollar conglomerate. We can't run like focus test right. groups. Like we definitely do customer feedback on some level, but not, you know, we're not running hundreds of flavor tests with consumers. Right. We tested hundreds of flavors, but then you're kind of taking your best gut feeling guess on what is going to resonate with the customer. So when it, when we actually put the product out there and people just were so raving about the taste, that was, that was really such a validation for us that we were really onto something. It's so interesting because like, if I was starting this, I would have thought that what would resonate is something that's tastes just like the thing yeah. that you that you already taste that yeah. you already like you know to switch yeah. behavior to just have it be a little bit better so it's it's an incredible insight yeah. please please for the love of god create a twizzler alternative i i beg of you twizzlers okay. are my um so yeah we're in r&d on some stuff i'm not gonna say we're not working on a twizzler okay. <laughs> thank god you will literally have me as a customer for life because I that is my that. my me go-to too. Okay. So you have a direct to consumer candy line. I feel like candy is one of those things that you buy at the end of your, of your grocery route, or if you're going to CVS or Dwayne Reed for your pharmacy run or whatever. Um, how have you found that to, to land on D to C and do you have plans on being in mass stores? Cause I do feel like candy is one of those kind of last minute purchases. And I do see a lot of good candies at the end of Whole Foods. So I'm just curious to know what your, what your thoughts are there. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, you know, we really focus in on the D to C channel, um, sort of in response 
response to COVID, but the plan was always to be very heavily focused on D2C. I think, in, you know, we would have we would have probably been 90% D2C at launch, and instead we were 100%. Um, but what you're saying is absolutely correct. Candy is an impulse purchase. Mm-hmm. It's something that people buy typically on a whim. Um, you know, candy moves really, really well in, in stores because it is that really easy grab. It's a low price point. Mm-hmm. People can just kind of grab it on their way out. It typically sits at the checkout aisle. So um, you, you know, candy performs very well, typically in store. Um, we've been blown away by the response that we've seen online, right? We're seeing people come and buy, you know, two boxes at a time. And, and so we didn't really know what to expect in the D2C channel, but we've been really, really pleasantly surprised with, with what we have seen. Um, but retail is absolutely on our radar. And I really see this as ultimately being an omni-channel business. So the idea right now is that we will continue to focus on the D2C channel because having that direct relationship with the customer and building our community is really important right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the minute you go into retail, you lose that direct connection. Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, you, uh, the sort of feedback loop uh, becomes much longer Mm -hmm. from when you actually can hear from a customer about what they think of your product. Like we were just talking about flavors, taste, text, you would have never known things. that had you launched yeah, we, and grocery. Exactly. Yeah. So we we want to know these things as quickly as possible. We want to be interacting with our customers and, and you get that more in the D2C channel. But we've already started showing up in a couple retail stores around New York. I we're saw seeing, you at Pop Up Grocer. We're at Pop Up <laughs> Grocer, exactly. Yeah, we're in a couple. We're in the Goods Mart uh, mm. here in New York. We're we're on a couple, uh, we're in a couple boutiques and um and I think it's been amazing for brand awareness. So we see that side of it, but also we're really moving numbers. So, um, you know, when you see that side as well, it's like you, you don't want to ignore that retail opportunity. You don't want to ignore that retail channel, but at the same time, you don't want to do it without a strategy. Mm -hmm. I think something that a lot of food, uh, something that can kill a lot of food and CPG brands is just starting to do everything, just going into retail too fast without a plan. And that's, and that's the feedback I've, you know, like I said, I have a lot of conversations with founders. I ask a lot of people, if you could go back and tell yourself where I'm at, what not to do or what mistake you've made. A lot of people say, be careful with retail, be strategic, go focus on one market and expand from there. Don't get, don't get um, attracted to the shiny object. Like we've already had mass market retailers calling and saying, we want to put you in, you know, 5,000 doors across the country. And, um, you know, this is what we're going to do for you. And that we're going to put you at the front of the store and in the checkout aisle and all these things. And it's like, do you know how much cash it takes to support a retail partnership like that? You know, so we have to be really strategic and the plan for us is definitely going to be to focus on the New York market, um, to really focus on retailers that kind of hit our target consumer and then to expand out from there. So, so smart. So I want to know what your active ingredient is. What is like the deeper reason why you get up every morning? Is it like to kind of test yourself to see how far you can take something? Is it like you're just your love of candy? Like, I just want to know what like the pulse of what you do every day is. Oh, my active ingredient. I think my active ingredient is definitely seeing how far I can take this. Like, I think when you're starting a company, like I, you know, I think back to my, you know, we were having the conversation earlier, just having that seed of the idea, starting to, you know, think about what this could look like going, you know, having coffee with Elizabeth when this was just an idea, we didn't have a recipe. We didn't have a formula, a gummy bear. We didn't have a manufacturer. We didn't have a brand. 
And every time you just get to that next step, it is so exhilarating. So yeah, when I am up against challenges, when things do come up, when things do go wrong, which they absolutely do, and they will continue to, just knowing that on the other side of this challenge is like the next level. It's almost like Super Mario, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I like now I beat this, like I'm at some point I get to fight Bowser and like, and if I can, you know win in that battle, like it is going to be triumphant. So I definitely feel that. And then I think the other thing that really keeps me going a lot of the time is that, or just that I remind myself is like, I'm making candy. I went and toured a a factory the other day and I was like, I get to play Willy Wonka based. I'm Charlie in the chocolate factory. That's my life. That was my entire work day was walking around a literal candy factory. It smelled like sugar. It was glorious. Like we were literally just tasting candy and sitting around a table and tasting all these different things. It's like, who gets to do that? Like what? I mean, this is why I need like a new gratitude journal every three weeks. Cause like, I really do have a lot of gratitude that this is what I get to do for a living. And that, you know, I do think candy is this thing that brings a lot of people joy. And I, you know, I just hope that we can bring a little bit of joy to people with our products and with our brand and sort of the way that we talk about candy and the way we talk about just kind of life and being carefree and living your authentic life. And then I think the last, I I would also just add like the team, you know, we're a very small team right now, but I'm so energized by my team. I think everyone is so bought into what we're doing and there's a piece of every team member in the brand and in the business. And, you know, just being able to like get hype with each other. Like we were brainstorming candy flavors yesterday. New, you know, we're talking about now new flavors, future products. And, we're just like, it's just fun. Like we're, we're, and then we start getting into our childhood memories around these different flavors and these, how, you know, we would eat this fruit after whatever, um, after a soccer game or, you know, things like that. And it's just, it's just fun. I think, you know, and I've always had to, like I said, I, there have definitely been times in my career where I've had my identity so tied to work and it really can be detrimental. And I just have to remind myself, like, I am not curing cancer. I am not doing anything that is, you know, saving lives or, um, you know, that is life threatening or, you know, life or death. So just remind yourself of that and be like, this is fun. This should be fun. Mm -hmm. If it's not fun anymore, look in the mirror and ask yourself why and like try to reset. So the podcast is to obviously go through your journey and kind of get the nitty gritty on every single step, but it's also for the person who is listening, who wants to be in that space or who may be kind of sitting in that noise, you know, that we were talking about earlier, not being able to kind of sit with their own thought and ask themselves the question, what advice would you give to them on kind of taking those first steps that they see you living in your active ingredient and want to be doing it? What would you tell them? Yeah, I I think, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit around, um, or I I kind of brought this up a little earlier around when I had to look myself in the mirror and say, and I sort of had this friend that looked me in and called me out a little bit and said, if you want to do this, like you'll make the time, you'll figure it out. I, you know, the money side of things, I do, I do definitely want to acknowledge that like not everyone is in that position, but there are resources out there. I think when you really start digging in, if you feel like this is what I'm called to do, you know, find those resources, find those grants, figure out if you can connect with maybe investors, someone that could be an early investor in your business, a small business loans, figure out like, you know, try to try to figure out where you can get the early financing for the business, or if you can save, or if you can, um, you know, use part of your salary to fund those early days. And yeah, just kind of just, I think just look at yourself and say, do I want this enough? 
to make sacrifice. That, that, that's what it was at the end of the day. That's what my friend was basically calling me out for is you just want, you just want the business without the sacrifice. And that doesn't really exist because I think nothing that's really worthwhile in life can come without any sacrifice. And so, you know, are you willing to start making some of those sacrifices? And I, I want to go back and say, I don't mean sacrificing your health or your well-being. I don't mean, I definitely do not promote a lifestyle or a culture that is like, you need to sacrifice your sleep and you need to work every hour of the day. You need to work yourself to the bone. You're going to lose contact with your friends and your family. Like that is not how I think about starting a business. I've been very intentional and I'm again, working every day so that my journey of building a business doesn't look like that. There will be sacrifices and what do those look like? And, and, you know, ask yourself, what those look like and is it going to be worth it to you? And I think if it is, then you can start figuring out, all right, what's the next step? And like I said, just start putting one foot in front of the other. That's the biggest thing is just starting. When you say, all right, I'm ready to maybe have to make some sacrifices, maybe have to spend some Friday nights, Saturdays, you know, late, some, some maybe late nights after work, or maybe, you know, my Saturday or my Sunday, I'm going to spend them working on my business idea. Am I willing to start doing that? If so, what's step one and like literally start with step one, get to step two, find those other founders in your space, find those people in your network that you can ask questions to that you can lean on every founder. The reason I think I used to be shocked by the founders that would take a coffee meeting with me when I had nothing, I just had an idea, but every founder had those people that did that for them. So every there's a pay it forward sort of energy in the space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and I'm not going to say everyone's going to be down and, and people are busy and people might not have time, but like DM a founder, LinkedIn message a founder that you are inspired by, or, you know, someone in the startup world that maybe, may be able to help you. They might not have time for a coffee, but maybe if you write them five questions in an email, they might answer that or one question mm -hmm. or, um, you know, so yeah, just, I, I think start connecting with people around the space that you're interested in, people that you're inspired by, people that are kind of where you want to get to, and then literally say, what step? one is step one, creating an LLC so that you can start taking on consulting clients is step one, um, coming up with a name for your business is step one, creating the product, getting in the kitchen, working with those ingredients, finding a chef in my case, step one, get that done. All right. What's next? What's next? And that's how I got here. The, the only way I got here is literally one step at a time. I do not have a secret formula. I did not go to business school. I did not have a I did not have a 50 page business plan and every single strategy laid out to the T. I just said, all right, I'm just going to get to the next step every day. I'm going to get to the next step. And that is literally how I ended up with apparently a, a company and a product in the market, which I still sometimes can't believe exists. So incredible. What is your literal active ingredient? I always close out the podcast with a lighter question. What's something that you have to do? E, a person you have to see, whatever. What's like one non-negotiable you have to have in every single day? My literal active ingredient is... It has to be my gratitude journal. I know I've, I, uh, I love her. Um, yeah, it's just like literally every day if I don't do it. And the thing with the gratitude journal too, that I want to say is that I think some people feel like, all right, what if, well, I'm doing my gratitude journal, but like sometimes my day still sucks. And it's like, 
I get that too. I used to feel that when I started doing it, I was like, I, well, I wrote my gratitudes this morning, like, and now things aren't going well. And like, if I thought if I would write my gratitude, then my day would be perfect and I would be happy and I would smile the whole day. And, but what you start to realize is the gratitude compounds over time. Like now I just have so much more of a positive outlook. I can do such a better job of pulling myself out of a negative thought pattern of flipping the story in my head from things don't go my way to, wow, things really do go my way. Look at all these things I have to be grateful for in life. That process happens over time. So I'm probably like a year to two years, maybe now of doing the gratitude journal. And it's like, it's over, it's a lifelong process. And that is absolutely my active ingredient. I have to do it. I can't miss it. I have to do it every single day too. And it's a hundred percent, right? It's rewiring your brain and it doesn't happen overnight because what you, what like we're programmed to do, and it's just like an animalistic quality is to identify what's wrong. That's what our, that's what our kind of like MO is, you know, without practice. So it's literally rewiring your brain to identify the good and that be what you're seeking out versus the opposite. So great takeaway. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Where can people try behave? Um, and where can people find you? Yeah. People can try behave on our website, uh, eat behave, uh, E-A-T-B-E-H-A-V-E.com. Uh, we're on Instagram also at eat behave. Um, and if they want to, if anyone wants to reach out or have any questions, you can email us at hi at eatbehave.com. Amazing. And then for your gratitude journal, is that like a actual, like specific gratitude journal or something that we can link out at the show? Yes. I use the five minute journal from, um, I believe they're called intelligent change. Uh, but we'll link it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but you can write it on, you know, a blank journal. I just do it on my, I do it on my to-do list. Like before I do my to-do list, I'll just do like my gratitude. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you, Sophie. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you can take two seconds of your time to rate and review us, it would really mean the world and help us out a ton. If you guys want more inspiration and quotes from the episode, you can check us out on Instagram at Active Ingredient. See you next week.